Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Mabel and Me is the culmination of Borston's lifelong love, appa- love affair with the movies. Here he is to discuss it. Thank you. Good evening. I love this bookstore. Uh, anyway, we're right where the story takes place, actually, down there. The Max Senate Studios, as they call it now. They didn't call it that then. And uh, Glendale Boulevard, which was then Edendale. And Echo Park Lake, which was always Echo Park Lake. Uh, when the story starts, Hollywood was a dry town, very proper, very empty, a would-be refuge for Midwestern retirees. Uh, my story begins when movies were just beginning. My story ends ten years later. Movies are still silent, but by then the film maestro Abel Gantz could say the following. For me, he said, cinema is not just pictures. It's something great, mysterious, and sublime for which one should not spare any effort and for which one should not fail to risk one's life if the need arises. Well, I have to say uh, there's people in this town now who uh, probably feel the same way who consider dying if that would make the perfect movie. I say that because I felt that when I was younger. Um, I think most of the people have given themselves to the movies early on. What happens after that is a matter of character and circumstance. Uh, Of course, it doesn't have to be the movies. Most of us are looking for something to give ourselves to heart and soul. What happens when we find it? That's kind of what the book's about. I've wrestled with the movies for decades as a writer and filmmaker trying to decode their secrets. I even wrote a book about it, uh, Making Movies Work. They might have it here. Um, but Mabel and Me is different. Uh, this, is, this is more personal. I wanted to find out why movies had this power over me. So I turned to fiction and the early movie pioneers. Those early folks interested me because they made something out of nothing. I wanted to relive that experience. If I could recreate what it felt like to do all this for the first time, maybe I'd capture that special power movies have over me, over all of us. Um, These guys did it all incredibly fast. In 1912, when my story begins, there's no such thing as a movie star, a script, or a studio. And by 1920, the movies as we know them are pretty much in place. These guys made movies work. And I fell in love with Mabel Norman. She was the queen of comedy, the queen of slapstick. In her day, she was as famous as they came. 
except for Charlie Chaplin. As the tramp, he became the most famous person in the world, bar none. But she was already a star when he showed up. She played his girlfriend in the first feature-length comedy ever made. Before he was the tramp. And she directed his tramp debut, called Mabel's Strange Predicament. He's a calculating cad, and she's locked out of her hotel room in her pajamas. It was 1914. I don't love Mabel for her fame, quite the opposite. I love her for her honest ease. Max Sennett, the slapstick impresario who loved her too, said on screen she was pure emotion. This one all around her were burdened with theatrical convention. She was who she was without apology. And what she was, I yearned for. Photoplay magazine said that Mabel on screen was a slap in the face with a perfumed glove. She invented herself without a model. Comedians then were grotesques like the young Marie Dressler, and the joke was they thought they were beautiful. Actual beauties were storm seas of delicate sensibilities. They didn't do things, they felt things. Mabel was the first woman we let be both funny and beautiful. And sexy, but she was no vamp. Mabel didn't play the sex card. Her appeal came from her inner freedom. In a world where women didn't vote or practice medicine or law or even journalism, my woman was a bareback rider, a high diver, a stutz racer. She did what she wanted to do, and that included you know what. But, and she did it all without apology or explanation. The press called her the I don't care girl. A decade later, they'd have called her the flapper, but flappers weren't invented yet. The poor immigrant women in the cities, her first audience, embraced her as a liberating friend. And so did I. She invented what it was to be a movie star. And she paid the price. Her life was lived out loud in public. She was a tantalizing interview who knew how to flatter and confuse reporters, spicing banalities with the absurd. She served her fans. She was an avid reader, for example, serious books, Oscar Wilde, Aldous Huxley, Freud, but she couldn't let her fans know that. So she told the reporter who spotted them that she rented her place with bookstores stocked, with a bookshelf stocked by the foot. And of course, he believed her. She worked six days a week with men who said they loved her, but she was too valuable to love. She made their movies make money, and she was too canny, too self-protective to trust them. So she was alone, as only queens and movie stars can be alone. Her friend and rival, America's sweetheart Mary Pickford, or as Mabel liked to call her, that prissy bitch Mabel Pickford, had a strong, supportive mother and a love of her life, and Mabel had neither of those. Mabel deserved better. So I came up with Jack. My Jack loves her unconditionally. He's just 14 when the story starts, and he can barely read, but he has a gift. Like the cinematographer Gordon Willis, who died last week, he thinks in pictures. He never forgets an image, and he shuffles them like a magician's deck. As Mabel gets more ambitious, she leans on his instincts and his vision. My Jack was completely loyal to Mabel. But as happens in writing these things, he took on a life of his own. 
he falls hard for the movies. Things get complicated. Nobody owned Mabel, but she kept at it. Fueled by cocaine, in one year she made six pictures for Sam Goldwyn and saved his studio. Then she kicked drugs with the help of her mentor, William Desmond Taylor. You might have heard of him. He was found soon thereafter with a bullet in his back. She kept making movies. First, I loved Mabel for her easy freedom. Then I loved how hard she fought, her yearning, how she just wouldn't quit. At first I had to love her, and now she'd earned it. Most of her pictures are gone, but we still have her Chaplin movies and Mickey, the film she produced early in 1916, probably the first by a woman, a woman in this country. She beat Mary Pickford by three months. And she was in charge. She ran through five directors. She died when she was only 37, when silent pictures died. But in her brief life, she lived the whole story of American movies. She was first turn of the wheel that's been turning ever since. Uh, I'm going to read a moment here. Early in the book, um, my narrator, Jack, is 14, going on 15. He's just been hired by Mac Sennett as an extra pair of hands around the set. Uh, Mac fires people all the time. He's trying not to get fired. He's already gaga over Mabel, and he's just falling in love with the movies. <coughs> Beauties like Mabel were supposed to be up on pedestals like statues, but Mabel's a dirt level with everybody else. She borrows the carpenter's bull durham, rolls herself a smoke, and asks about his children. Then she listens. If he asks about her, she just bounces it back. I ask around, and sure enough, nobody knows nothing about her. She asks me about Ma and Sam, too. I clam up. Not because I'm struck dumb. I'm over that. It's just Mabel's my future, and I don't, don't want them to drag me back. Mabel laughs and drops it. She knows why I shut up. She knows I'm special built for pictures like her. Mabel treats Mac like he's everybody else, too. Mac got no choice but to go along with it. I don't mean they ain't a couple, of course. It's just Mabel's way. One day he's nothing to her. Next day she wears a rhinestone ring he gave her in New York. She likes to keep him guessing. It keep, drives him crazy. Mac's so nuts about her, I figure they gotta be a couple. I ain't exactly jealous. What right have I got to be jealous? I just carry the dynamite bombs. But it gives me hope. Sometimes I think there's nothing special between Mabel and me. Maybe I just want it so bad I dream it up. Then a giant knobby green Chinese vase comes along. We're back at Effie Street in an open top barn under muslin sheets what make everything glow soft like a giant aquarium with rugs and furniture and flags in an old soldier's home. Mabel dusts the place and the vase got a beaner. Mac chews on how to conk Mabel funny and not bash her head in. If I shoot in pieces, it's phony, and phony ain't funny, he says. In pieces means first show the vase fall, then show Mabel pretend conked. Funny is that humongous motherfucker flattens little Mabel. I can do that, I say, without killing Mabel. Mac's maw frowns. I'm even smaller than her. I can hide behind her, and when it falls, I can knock it away with my hands. That's a hellacious big vase. I can show you with Cracker Jack. 
Cracker Jack bitches, but Max swaps him in for Mabel. Hans lets, tells me how to hold myself so I'm blind to camera. I time it out. Cracker Jack squeezes his eyes shut and stands like Max a firing squad. Mac calls action. I yank on the string. I yank on the string I tie to the vase. It falls. I muscle up and bang it away. Cracker Jack grunts like he's smashed but don't feel a thing. But it's heavy as hell. I had no idea what a fucking vase weighs. I rub my sore hand, half close my eyes. I see my hand slip, I see Mabel's head split wide open. I'm a stupid ass show off sucking up to Mac. But what the hell, I tell myself, Mac won't risk it. Mac puts an arm around Mabel. Considering how much they talk, it's funny how little they touch. You don't gotta do this, baby, says. Oh yeah, I do, Nappy, and you damn well know it. Nappy's short for Napoleon. Mabel calls him Nappy to tick him off. She takes Cracker Jack's spot. Mabel, I say, that vase is heavy as hell. What if I miss? What if you miss Cracker Jack? She pushes me down behind her, just like I was with him. I'm tied up against her strong shoulders. Her tangy sweat powers some flower I never smelled before. Soft and purple. All I can see is her busted head and blood all over. I start to shake. Ready, babe, Max says. His voice is soft. Mabel twists around so her nose to nose. I suck in her donut breath. She folds my shaking hands in both of hers, leeches out the jitter. She stares inside me like she never does to no one, never, her eyes fat with trust, and smiles like I saved her life already. She don't say a word because she don't have to. Like we're two parts of one person, and I'm as strong and sure as she is, and I am. And she's back to first position. Hans cranks camera. Mac calls action. Mabel waves her feather duster. Mac says, now, Flicker, now. I yank my string. The vase crashes down. I jump at it so hard my hand blows up in pain. But I keep down out of sight like I'm supposed to. Mac calls cut, whoops like a cowboy on Saturday night and mashes his lid on his spiky head. Mabel rolls back and touches my hand where I grab it. The pain ping-pongs around inside my head, but to hell with the pain. Mabel could have died and she ain't complaining. She laid down her life to get it right. That's how brave she is and that's how much she cares and how much she trusts me. We are one glorious person. Piece of cake, I say, or try between lightning bolts. She puts her lips on mine and walks off. Right then, I know my job, then and forever, is save her from the killer vases of the world. So, here we are in the heart of this, where all of this happened. These buildings, some of these buildings were still here. I think the, the coffee house, maybe. Any questions, thoughts? Curious. Um, how do you know all the business about her using cocaine? Well, that's what Sam Goldwyn says. I mean, that's, it, nothing actually is known about her. In fact, the biography about her that Betty Fussell wrote, uh, which is the only biography, the point.
point of the biography is how no one knows anything because she talks, people say, but there's a, a bunch of interesting narratives about her that kind of explain a series of different facts. And it seems that she was probably on cocaine. How much and how long and all that is, depends on, on who you believe. Um, but what happened was when the First World War came in, a lot of drugs came into this country in a big scale for the first time, cocaine among them, um, not only to Hollywood, but all over the place. And uh, so that's when they, that they came into the movies originally. Don't forget, this starts in 1912, so the war is until 19, really 1916, 1918, this starts happening, 1918 to her. But Well, originally she was making small, short films, and she was making, you know, it would take five days to make a movie, and she'd made them all the time, so she'd maybe 50 a year or something. She made a, a couple of hundred movies, and then she was doing the features, you know, she did the six for Sam Goldman in that one year. She was working all the time. Would you forget, you people talk about these movie stars like they're off doing glamorous things, but they worked really hard, particularly in those days, you know. It was a job, and they, they only were lit with the sun at the beginning, so they couldn't work when there wasn't any sun, at least they couldn't shoot. So, but they'd work from when it got light to when it got dark, and they'd do it six days a week. And then, um, yeah, it was just, it was all consuming. That's the thing about it, you forget. Yeah? Do you have, a, do you have your own theories about few murders in her life, right? About a few murders in her life. There, there were, yes, there were. Well, she seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, or else she had a nose for difficult men. Her chauffeur shot the man who was apparently her lover with her gun. That's the thing that happened also. And she was involved with Fatty Arbuckle, who, you know, the fatty, famous Fatty Arbuckle scandal. He was accused of raping a woman in San Francisco, which was a completely bogus charge. But she was Fatty Arbuckle's on-screen mate. They were the most popular couple in movies uh, for 1915-1916. So she came to his defense because she thought it was ridiculous. Um, and because she was his movie wife, everyone thought, oh, she must be his real wife and, and, and that she was somehow involved in all this, even though she wasn't even there. But she managed, this is before the Hollywood Code, and this is actually, these were the things that helped create the code, you know. Um, but she was, uh, she managed to kind of s s overcome them, and her audience kept forgiving her, you know, um, for these things that even weren't quite sins, but could easily have destroyed, certainly destroyed Fetty Arbuckle. Yeah? Your narrator has a very specific voice uh, in terms of um, vernacular. Yeah. Did you do research for that? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the Directors Guild in the 70s did an oral history project, and they recorded these guys who were still alive at that point, most, um, and uh, they're they had the tapes and they published a couple of books based on them. So I had a sense I could hear them, you know, that gave me the, the grounding for this. Um, there were a couple of brothers, real life brothers, uh, named the, uh, the White Brothers, who, who made uh, the, uh, what are they, the goons? The, the three guys who hit each other on the head. Why can't, I can't remember. The Three Stooges. They made the Three Stooges sound pictures. Uh, but he, they, they also directed, one of them directed for Max Sennett when he was 
17. So, yeah, no, I... Well, I, I read the transcripts, but yeah. Uh, well, they had the tape somewhere, but I, w I didn't have access to them. Um, yeah. And then you hear it in your head. Yeah. So I, I love the way you captured like this LA of a hundred years ago, uh, especially like going out. So they go out to Vernon, right? When I first read Game of Thrones, I was like, Vernon? They're going to Vernon? And you describe these scenes. So I'm just interested in how you researched the LA of that time and these, because you really brought it to life. Well, thank you. I don't know if you know, but Vernon, they were, tr L.A., even back, this is 1915, they were trying, you know, before it was the movie capital or anything, the movie capital then was New Jersey, Fort Lee, New Jersey. This was the place people came in the winters. And it wasn't until the uh, war, the First World War, there was a coal shortage, and they rationed coal, so they came out here, f in, they came out to L.A. in the winters, because they couldn't, they couldn't uh, heat their uh, studios in New Jersey. But, and then they liked it and they stayed. But at this point, it was, was they were trying to make this a, you know, a tourist destination. And um, Vernon was, um, they had a world championship boxing match there. This was before there was radio, by the way, which didn't come in until the 20s. So having something in a distance was a big deal. If you, you, if you, had, if you had film of it, you had someone filming it with a camera, you know, cranking away. And that was it. And they had ba so they tried to sort of create an events and things. So they had ra race, racing cars, um, and uh, baseball, and anything they could think of. But how did I learn all about that stuff? Yeah, God, I don't. I just got into it. I you know you, you know Aaron. He's a sort of an expert on LA actually, uh, and. Uh, uh, you might have given me some books to read about it, <laughs> I remember. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, sure, yes, I went, that's, that was very helpful too, yes, you go back and live. It's like, in 1915, the LA Times did not allow anyone to advertise, or in 1912, they, did, they didn't advertise movies. It was like trying to advertise something that was triple X rated or something now. They were considered to de classe. So Mabel Norman, to get herself in the paper, she went around at the election and, and was uh, sort of stumping for the candidate. But that was before she was a movie star. They didn't have the names of the actors on the, on the movies yet, because they thought if they put the actor's name on it, they'd have to pay them more money. So, uh, but she went and, and did that and got herself in the paper as a, a movie, what do they call them, an entrepreneur or a movie performer or something, um, and uh, stumping for the socialist candidate. Yeah? If you were to analyze it, um, you know, knowing what you know about the anti-code, um, when were the best decades Wow. Well, I would say, you know, it depends on what you... There was something about the very beginning, which was, very, which was really a good time. I mean, there's an interesting book called Without Lying Down uh, by a woman named uh, Carrie um, Beecham, 
which talks about these early years, because the thing about the early years was people who had a real job didn't want to get involved in movies. It was all the rejects. It was the Jews, it was the Irish, and it was the brand new immigrants, and it was people like women who, if you couldn't get a job anywhere. The one thing about, if you're going to do, if you're going to do a love story, you need a woman. You can't not have a woman, right? If you're going to do a heterosexual love story, so that gave women a kind of power they didn't have in, say, the law in, in, in journalism or something. So, um, and there were some very successful women early on, uh, who. Inclu including Mary Pickford and, and her, and a, who sort of took advantage of that. And then the highest paid uh, screenwriter right after this, in the, like, the late teens and 20s, was a woman and who invent, like, wrote the first gangster movie. She's in this, without lying down book, Frances Marion. Um, but there, and there were a couple of directors, but um, you know, then they, when it, it got so big so fast, you know, by ni what happened was in 1915, Birth of a Nation was, came out, and that changed all the rules, because that was so enormously successful that it made every other movie had to be a feature-length film. All of a sudden, instead of making half-hour movies, you were making 90-minute movies. Uh, be before that, people thought you could just a whole evening of half-hour movies. That was great. But after that, everyone had to make these feature films, and the, the amount of money involved was so big that uh, it became big business, and the big and the big financiers came in, and and then all the marginal people got pushed out, in favor, you know, and made it harder for women and harder for everyone else. Oh yeah, I mean this is this is one of them. This this guy Max Sennett comes out here in 1912, and it starts with them getting on the red car to go to make their movie. They're carrying all their own equipment, and you know, five years later, he has a studio and trucks and you know the whole thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Look how that's how it got so successful. But yeah, but everyone had to figure it out. It's like he, Max Sennett's problem was he made a deal where he was selling his movies by the foot. So he'd make a picture and he'd sell it, and you could buy it for, for a f whatever, 100, whatever, 800 feet of film was worth, and then you could run it as much as you want and make as much money you want with it as you could. So if he had a very popular movie, you would get rich off his popular movie, but he'd make no more money than if the movie hadn't sold at all. Well, it took him about two years or three years, but it got, he was really screwed at that point because he couldn't pay anyone what they were worth because he had no money because he was locked into that system. But yeah, then he renegotiated that system uh, and, you know, in the process. And Mabel was always caught in the middle of that because she was kind of in love with her but also taking advantage of her. She was so tremendously popular. When they made this silent, the, the first feature-length comedy, they, they brought in a theater, uh, Marie Dressler to make it more, guarantee their success because she was the most successful actress on Broadway at the time, or one of them. And Mabel was being paid $250 a week, a lot of money in those days. Marie Dressler got $3,500 a week because that was her stage rate. That's how much more the stage actresses were getting. That changed fast, too. But, but at the beginning, you know, that it's... Uh, but there was the, what I loved about this period is the freedom and the sense of, being, of just everyone feeling their own way. And, and these things that would be held against you, whether it was being a woman or being illiterate or not having an education, or uh, didn't count, you know? You could just come in and if you did it and it worked, uh, you, were, you were one of the good, you know, one of the winners.
and that to me is uh, very exciting. Um, for, Well, yeah, I mean, basically, they were, at the beginning, they were using daylight, sunlight. So the fact that there were so many days of sunlight was what it was really about, you know, that they could just shoot all the time um, and, and not be at the mercy of the weather. Um, but um, I don't know. In terms of special, I'm just thinking of Gordon Willis, the cinematographer who did The Godfather, who was a fellow that I knew. Uh, he came out here, he hated the Los Angeles light. He said Los Angeles had terrible light. But he, by then they had other ways to light sets, so. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, what they, people do is they shoot at different times of day. You get a different look at the late afternoon, early morning, as opposed to the heat of the day. Uh, yeah, yeah, well. Yeah, it was uh, just remarkable. It, it really is like the garage days with the internet because it's happened so fast. People started with living in their garage and making it up and then it gets formalized and there's this huge structure about what you're supposed to do. When Max said it, he hated writers. He didn't believe he needed writers. His first movies, he just made up as they went along. And then he realized you could save money by having writers because you wrote it down, you could, wouldn't shoot stuff you didn't use. Um, so he did hire people uh, to write his, quote, write his movies, but he wouldn't give them a pen or pencil. He said, you can't write it down. If you can't just tell it to me, it's not a movie. So, and his art stuff, in terms of where he learned this stuff, he, he left his archives to the Academy, which is at the uh, Margaret Herrick Library, if you know where that is. That's a great place to visit if you're interested in this, by the way. You can look at, you know, all of his material. He has the very first scripts. I have the scripts from 1912, which is just when he came back from shooting, they'd tell someone, some stenographer, what they did, and they'd write it down so the editor would know what they, how it was supposed to go together. And then you can see them get more elaborate. You know, then they're actually having writers doing stuff and screwing it all up. <laughs> Do you realize those are the days? Um, well, you know what? Uh, Mary Pickford, who is a, a very smart woman, said um, that if movies were logical, they would have started out as a, a sound thing and then become silent. <laughs> because in fact, the silent is the art of movies, is really that, is the visual, is visual imagery, you know? And the, once you bring in sound, it becomes much more like a play, and then you bring in all the, you know, thousands of years of tradition that goes into theatrical tradition. Because movies were one of the, you could argue that movies were the first new art form since the novel, when, you know, 600 years before, whatever it was, 500 years before. Um, because the the, having a series of images, juxtaposition of images, in a, you have to watch in a forced, in a forced way, you know, is a, is a new thing. And um, like the early, like Abogatz and Murnau, they didn't call themselves directors like, uh, they considered it was conducting like a, like a, a music. They called what they did. They didn't. Have, they didn't call them screenwriters. They called them composers because it was a flow, it was a sequence of images. It was more like a musical experience than it was like reading something. And the best silent films have that quality, and they're really transportive. They kind of carry you into a way into a, 
another world. Give us a little know about me. Well, part of it is the mystery, and uh, I, I, Betty Vassell wrote a very good a book about you know this history about her. Um, but also, just when it, the things that happened in her life, you know, cert, we know, we know there are certain benchmarks of what happened. But f well, for instance, uh, she she uh, she was engaged to Max Sennett. They were going to get married, and then she was in the hospital for three months and they were never engaged again. And he said he always loved her. So what happened? How did she end up in the hospital? There's, there, are ver there are stories, you know, and I pick the one that makes the most sense to me and also, and, and so because there are these holes, you can kind of create, project onto the person what you want, you know, the person that you want her to be, the way we all do when we fall in love with someone. And uh, in this case, um, I saw, I just saw this like string of beads, you know, that I, you could follow them and, and it, it created this, it, it just explained to me the thing about the movies that I was always trying to see. Also because she, she was, she started with nothing, she had no artistic aspirations, and then she really wanted to make the best movie she could, she wanted to make the great American movie, and she worked and worked to do it, and then she got trapped by being too successful, because if, then the audience made her copy herself, and she never really had a chance after that to to do something new. Uh, and she never found the the, f the filmmaker to do it with her. You know, she wasn't a chaplain; she didn't have that kind of genius. But she she needed someone who probably would help her shape it. And the men around her just used her in a way that you know, ultimately. So she has the tragedy, too, of the never having fulfilled what I see as her potential, which I think is the way most people who work in movies feel. I mean, I feel that myself, uh, and I, you know, my friends all feel that way, not that we haven't accomplished things, but you always think of the one that got away and about the one that you really wanted to make, and people always have some secret movie that they, you know, that they know that they should have made that they didn't get made. Or, and she has that quality too, but she kept going, you know, and she still prevailed. So, anyway, that's that was, that was why she fascinated me. Well, she she was a movie star. You know, movie stars had this quality. You see them on screen, and they just make you want you want them. You want to be you want them to be your friend. You feel like you own them, or and, and you you're willing to give pay money every week to see them. I mean, that's what she had. She just had that star quality. Um, and uh, she, partly because she just didn't, she, she was so natural. Um, and uh, so she wasn't trained. Um, so she kind of discovered for herself what we now consider naturalistic movie acting. But yeah, so, anyway, yeah, there's, yeah. He wrote about her, yeah. See, the thing is, these guys wrote their memoirs 30 years later, and then they contradict each other. Also, like his memoir, when he, they, they couldn't go back and look at the movies, so he's kind of writing from memory from 30 years before. Because the movies, you know, they're gone, at least weren't available to him. So a lot of what he says is just flat out wrong. He says, you know, he was such and such a character, such and such a movie, and he just wasn't, you know. And that he says that about her. But she directed him, 
in this tramp, and he he never gave her credit. He didn't. He wanted to have all the credit for inventing the tramp, and maybe he. So in her, he actually ended up insisting. Uh, well, anyway, it's his story of what happened is different than Max Sennett's story of what happened, and he was. Max Sennett was producing it. And it's different from another actor's story who was also there, who was in the movie, and there's nothing written down, you know, and there was no script, and in fact, they made up the character on the spot in the course of the, the shooting. But you can see what he looked like before she worked, he worked with Mabel in that. And then you can see in that movie, he's just a completely different character. Uh, something was unlocked in that process, and I like to think that Mabel helped unlock it the way a good director, and she was also his, his co-star, you know, could do. Anyway. It's funny to have somebody that we have a record of that has a lot of influence on where we are now Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Part of it is that 80% of the movies are gone. And uh, that's a lot. But also, it's just the way the, wor the thing worked back then. You could be mysterious. People were all running away from something. You know, William Desmond Taylor, the director who was, who was shot, it turned out he had a whole previous life. He'd run away from a family in the East Coast and gone to be a, a, a gold panhandler, panhandler in Alaska. And nobody knew this, you know, because he'd created this persona for himself when he showed up. And so there was a lot of that in, in uh, L.A. And she didn't talk about her mother. She, they, we knew that she grew up in Staten Island. But she, every time she read a book, she changed the, her biography. She'd read Oliver Twist and say she was raised in an orphanage. <laughs> and the guys would write it down. And so I also admired that about her, too. She just... She wasn't worried about about pleasing all these people. Anyway. Ah, funny. I actually it's about New York City in the 1890s. Theodore Roosevelt. He was the police commissioner of New York, trying to clean up the corrupt New York police. Yep. And he failed miserably. So this is the story about how miserable, why he failed so miserably. But that's that's a. That's another story. And, but I, it is true about being this, this early time fascinates me because it's like now when things are getting invented. We think it's a lot of change now, but imagine when there was the change from the horse to the automobile, which happens in this book, you know, when there was no telephone. You couldn't, you couldn't contact anyone except by sending them a, a, a telegram uh, at, a, at a distance. There was, the, our relationship to each other, you know, was much more a matter of being what you were, who you were actually physically next to, you know. So, the, I mean, imagine how we, th I think those changes were bigger than the internet changes, though they were similar in a way because they were just a previous version of bringing people closer together. Um, but she, that's the other thing about movies at this point. This was the first mass medium. It's the first time uh, everyone could have the same experience. You know, it's one thing to read about it in a paper, but as everyone saw Birth of a Nation, they all had the primary experience. And so they could talk about it as if, because they all lived through it. And that is, we, now we take that for granted. You see that everywhere. But before the movies, nobody could do that. That was impossible. Uh, and then, bang, everyone had saw Mabel. Everyone saw Charlie Chaplin. And that's what created the modern, um, the modern era of the image, 
know, where we all assume we're all sharing these experiences. Yeah. In those days, uh, the movies were not particularly American. I mean, there was a lot of American movies. Because they were silent movies, you could make them in any language and show them all over the world. You just cut in new, new titles, right? So the French were really big. And in fact, a lot of the big American movies were made by the French company. Um, but uh, with the First World War, that kind of wiped out the European filmmaking. Um, and because Germany was huge too, they had the, and, yeah. But then, after the war, the Americans just dominate had the dominant place in the market because they were making movies and everyone else didn't have the equipment. And then there was a, that's when the, it became our treasured export. Anyway, yeah, it's a fascinating time, and uh, you're very lucky to be living immersed in this. And I suggest, you know, do go to the Margaret, Margaret Herrick Library, which is on uh, Olympic and La Cienica, if you want to. They're very nice and friendly. Uh, anyone can go. And uh, they have all these wonderful photographs, you know, because they have all the archives. And um, people there in a great library of books about the movies. And if you want to, and they're very helpful. So if you want to know about women in early movies or some particular actress or anything else, it's a great way to do it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.